Good morning and welcome. Thank you for logging on and tuning in this morning to Table, such as it is. We're going to change the format of things a little bit now for the next few weeks. This lockdown is rumbling on. Uh, we're shifting things so that we can have a little bit more participation and communication and connection with each other on a Sunday morning. So the plan is to be on YouTube from now until 11.30 with a short message. And then at about 11.45, we're going to open up a Zoom meeting and you can jump into that and we will be able to see each other, chat, catch up. You'll be able to share anything that God has blessed you with in the past week or anything that needs prayed about. And that's what we're going to run with for the next while. Uh, in terms of the messages themselves, we are starting a series this morning on Philippians. So if you have a Bible, can you please go to Philippians chapter 1? And this is, a, this is a teach. We're going to walk through this great letter together over the next 8 or 10 weeks, however long it takes. Many of us, if we're asked, what is your favorite letter that Paul wrote? Many people will say Philippians, uh, because we find Paul here writing to friends that he deeply, deeply loves. We find a letter that's peppered with joy, that's peppered with gospel, and, and this is a favorite letter for many of us. And Paul wrote this letter when he was separated from the Philippians, he was in prison. Uh, and he dearly wanted to be with them, but he could not be with them. So instead of being with them, he does the next best thing that he had at his disposal. Back in those days, he writes a letter. And uh, we're going to just linger in this letter for a while. Let me read the first couple of verses. Today will be mainly background, mainly introduction, things that some of which might sound a wee bit like a history lesson, but once you've got them, you will realize why Paul puts things the way he puts them in Philippians. And hopefully this letter that we all love, this letter that we frequently go to, to lift a favorite verse, a verse of encouragement, wonderful truths that are in here, that what we will find is that those will become even more wonderful when we really understand the context in which Paul was writing them. So Philippians chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. I don't think I'm going to get much further than that by 11.30. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray for a moment before we dive in. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Father, that you have caused this document to be preserved for almost 2,000 years, that it has blessed and enriched so many millions and billions of people throughout history. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write it. And we ask that that same Holy Spirit would come and fill us, fill our hearts, fill our imaginations, and stir us with this wonderful truth that we find in these short few pages. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would bless and build your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Philippi 
was named after somebody. I wonder, could you guess who Philippi was named after? It was a man. Um, any, any, anybody out there, you know, I hope you're in your front room shouting at each other about who you think this was. The guy was called Philip. Mm. And you, you, you don't sort of get any prizes for figuring that one out. Philippi was named after Philip. And we're back here in about 360 BC in around roughly that time period when this guy Philip took over the city. And in case you've never heard of Philip, uh, you maybe have heard of his son. I'm just wondering if anybody out there knows who Philip's son was. Philip's son was Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great conquered the known world by the time he was in his early 30s and then proceeded to drink himself to an early grave while still in his 30s. But can you imagine what it was like for Philip raising Alexander the Great? Can you imagine what sort of an infant he would have been? If he had conquered most of the world by his early 30s, he must have been an absolute tyrant when he was about six years old just running around the house, conquering everybody else's bedroom and jumping up and down on their beds with a flag declaring that this is now his property. He would have been a difficult child. But Philip, father of Alexander, founded the city of Philippi. And it was geographically really well located and quite easy to defend. But that's probably not Philip's motive for going there. Philip's motive was that in the nearby mountains there were gold mines. And that's what he was after. So that's why he established himself in Philippi. Now in about 168 BC, don't switch off. Stay tuned because you've got to get this if you're really going to get the weight of what Paul writes. In about 168 BC, along come the Romans. And they turf out the... the sort of inhabitants of Philippi as it was, and they take over the place. And it becomes a really important center for the Romans. If you know any history of Rome, they had a a road, a particular uh, route by which they traveled across northern Greece called the Ignatian Way. And that was how Rome would move her armies really quickly from place to place. Philippi was on that road, on the Ignatian Way, and therefore became a very important Roman city. And in about 42 BC, there was a Roman civil war where they started squabbling with each other. In the blue corner, we had two guys called Brutus, which is a great name, Brutus. Brutus and Cassius. They were fighting together on one side, And in the red corner, we have a guy called Octavian and his mate, Mark Antony. And they come together and they fight. Now, Octavian and Mark Antony win. Octavian goes on in the future to become Augustus Caesar. So this is about 40, 42 BC. But as you would expect with people like Octavian, him and Mark Antony fall out. They start fighting with each other because both of them want to be the big cheese. Both of them want to be in charge. They have won this previous victory and now they start fighting against each other and Octavian wins. All right, so you've now got this guy Octavian in about 30 BC who's going to become Augustus Caesar and he is in charge and he is a very, very smart man indeed. 
And what Octavian does is he takes ex-Roman soldiers from his own side and he puts them into Philippi to live there. He basically rewards them for their service to him by saying, here's some houses and here are farmlands and fields. You go and you live there. And he not only does that for the Roman soldiers who fought with him, he also does it for the other Roman soldiers that fought with Mark Antony against him. So he gets them on board as well by giving them this city to live in. So the city is indwelled by a whole lot of ex-Roman soldiers. And Octavian is also dealing with a population problem in Rome because Rome was getting too highly populated. And by chucking all of these ex-soldiers over to Philippi, he dealt with that at the same time. So we've got Philippi full of Romans who are very, very loyal to the emperor, to Octavian, who became Augustus. And let me tell you a little bit about Philippi. We're going somewhere here. We're going somewhere. You need to get this. I love whenever you understand the background, the culture of the places where Paul was writing to, because then what he writes suddenly has so much more color and more vigor for us to understand. Philippi was basically mini Rome. It was a Rome away from Rome. If you were in Philippi, you would have seen Roman architecture. All the buildings looked like Roman buildings. Roman dress. The people wore clothes that looked like Roman clothes. They were Roman clothes. Uh, Roman culture. Roman coins. Roman gods. And in particular, the worship of the emperor was a big deal in Rome. You will read in history about the imperial cult. That means they worshipped the Roman emperor. They worshipped Augustus Caesar. Worshipped him as a god. Because his father, Julius Caesar, was seen as being a god. And Augustus declared himself to be the son of God. Interesting whenever you then later in his life read about the birth of Jesus against that. And... In public life, whenever any public events were happening, they, they started every public event not with the national anthem, not with, you know, God save our gracious queen or whatever. They, they, did not, they did not sing these songs, but they had their own way of doing that. And what they did was at the start of every public event in Philippi, you had to declare that Caesar, Kaiser, you had to say Caesar is two things, two words that you had to declare about Caesar. He is, one of them is interesting and a dog is about to lift its ears somewhere. One of the things that you had to say about Caesar is that he was curios, curios. And curios means Lord. And the other thing you had to say about him was that he was soter, which means savior. So every public event in Philippi started off with the people coming together and declaring Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Savior. Now, can you imagine being a Christian in that culture? Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Savior. Now, those of you that know Philippians, or maybe you will read it this week and refresh your mind, do you know anywhere in Philippians where somebody else is declared emphatically to be Lord? We'll get there. Not today, though. 
And if you were basically in the first century, if somebody put a blindfold on you, set you on a donkey and, and walked you to Philippi, took the blindfold off, you know, dumped you in Philippi city centre and took the blindfold off and asked you to have a look around and say, where do you think you are? You would have got off the donkey. You would have looked at the buildings. You would have looked at the clothes. You would have looked at the coins. You would have looked at the citizens. You would have looked at the, the, the temples to the gods. And you would have said, I am in Rome. Because Philippi was exactly like Rome. And if you lived in Philippi, catch this now for reading Philippians. If you lived in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. Because everything in Philippi looked like Rome. And the people who lived there were declared to be citizens of Rome, showing the rest of the world around them what Rome looked like and what Roman culture looked like. They were citizens of Rome. Now, if your lights aren't going on already, you need to read Philippians again because there's a phrase to do with citizenship in Philippians. I'll give you a hint. It's in chapter 3. And when you realize that these citizens of Rome in Philippi were showing the world what Rome looked like. Suddenly what Paul is going to say in chapter 3 about a different citizenship totally comes to life about how we as Christians are meant to live in the world and the culture that we are meant to show about the place where we have our citizenship. We'll get there. Not today though. Other fun Philippian factoids for you are that, uh, first of all, joy is mentioned here more than any other place in the Bible. Perverse. Uh, More joy than, than anywhere else perverse of Scripture, per word. But, and everybody knows that Philippians is a, is a letter about joy, not everyone, but most people who have read it will know there's a real heavy emphasis on joy. Mentioned more than joy is the gospel. Okay, this is just, Paul can't do anything without it becoming saturated with gospel. And the most common noun in the book of Philippians, if you like your nouns, the most common noun is the noun Christ. This is all about Jesus. Paul sitting in a prison, writing to people that he loves, all about Jesus. Let's back up a bit and see how it all began. We're going to Acts chapter 16. We will hopefully make it back to Philippians before my time runs out. But we're going to go to Acts chapter 16 and find out how the Philippian church began. What was the story? This church in this Roman pagan city. In Acts 16, looking at verse 6, Paul prays about going to a couple of different places. But the Holy Spirit stops them from going there. And then in verse 9, it says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. That's where Philippi was. He has a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave from Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So there's a vision. Paul gets this vision of a guy in Philippi in Macedonia saying, come here and help us. Bring the gospel to us. So they saddle up 
and they head towards Philippi, and it's actually the first place in Europe that receives the gospel. Very important moment. The gospel goes to the continent of Europe for the first time. Now, what Paul normally does whenever he goes to a new city with the gospel is he usually goes to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue where the Jewish men were gathered. And what he would do is he would get his scriptures, his Hebrew scriptures, and he would start to use the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, and he would use those to persuade and to explain to people who Jesus actually is and was. That's, that was Paul's tactic. When he gets to Philippi, he can't do that because there's no synagogue. Now that shows how Roman and how pagan Philippi was because all you needed to have a synagogue was 10 Jewish men. That was it. That was the prerequisite. 10 Jewish guys, okay, you can open a synagogue. There was no synagogue in Philippi because there wasn't enough Jewish men to open a synagogue. It was a thoroughly pagan, non-Jewish, godless city. And whenever Paul gets there, he does not find a synagogue, but he finds a group of people by the river. One of them is called Lydia. Lydia is female. (laughs) Some deep theology coming at you this morning. The fact that Philippi is named after Philip the fact that Lydia is a woman. So the first Christian convert in all of Europe was a lady. Church still needs to get it right about ladies. First person to see Jesus rise from the dead was a woman, Mary Magdalene. The first Christian convert in all of Europe was a woman, Lydia She's already been seeking God. They've already been gathering at a river, we read in Acts 16, and and praying and seeking God together. This, This woman and people who are with her. She was probably a widow, probably quite wealthy. She was a dealer in purple cloth. And if you've watched BBC News this week, you've seen a little bit about purple cloth being found in an archaeological dig in Israel which is thought to date back to the time of David and Solomon. Really interesting article. You should go and have a look at it. But she dealt in purple cloth, which was very, very expensive. Had her own business, had her own home, and she probably looked after other widows in her home. Because she was wealthy, she probably reached out to these other women, brought them into her home and looked after them. So it all started well. They got to the river, they found Lydia, Uh, She got born again, the Holy Spirit opened her heart, and the church in Philippi got established. But then there was demonic opposition. This, in verse 16, this slave girl who is demonic, demon-possessed, she starts to go about after them, shouting at them in Philippi. And then there is human opposition. And then they are beaten, and then they're put in prison. So it all goes pear-shaped very, very quickly. And apart from Lydia's household, the second convert that we read of in Europe is the jailer in the Philippian prison, who was on the brink of suicide. On the brink of suicide. He was about to end his life because the prison doors had flung open, the earthquake had happened, he assumed the prisoners had escaped, and he was about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do it, we're still here. 
Incredible grace from Paul. Just incredible, phenomenal grace that this man shows. If Hollywood was doing this story, the Philippian jailer would have killed himself or a rock would have fallen on his head. There would have been some sweet revenge. But God and the gospel does not do sweet revenge. It does grace. And Paul brings this guy grace and he gets born again and his whole household after being about to kill himself. Look at the incredible diversity of the gospel. This wealthy widow and then this jailer are the first two Christians in Europe. And it's worth noting that just because you have a dream or a vision from God, as Acts 16.9 records that Paul did, that does not mean you're going to have an easy road. To follow that and see that dream become a reality involves demonic opposition, human opposition, even a beating, even an imprisonment. You need to have tenacity and stamina and determination and faith if you're going to see that dream or that vision that God has put in your heart actually become a reality. Too many of us, when we face opposition or difficulty, we step back and convince ourselves that we didn't hear God in the first place. And we did, and we need to stand firm and keep going in the face of opposition. Another little interesting thing just about Philippi for you is that in in Acts, if you know the book of Acts, you will know that sometimes Luke, when he writes Acts, he uses the word we. And obviously he's involved at that stage. And sometimes he uses the word they when he is not involved. And if you look at how it shifts in Acts 16 and Acts 20, I'm not going to go through the verses for the sake of time, but it's highly likely that Luke was one of the first leaders in the Philippian church. Luke who wrote the gospel, who wrote Acts. Because at the end of chapter 16, he writes, they left. So Paul and the others left. He didn't go with them. He stayed put. And then in Acts 20, whenever Paul returns to Philippi, it suddenly changes from they to we, because Luke is back in the story, because they're back in Philippi, and he's been there the whole time leading the church. This first group of Christians in Europe captured Paul's heart in a beautiful way. And he, they were not a burden to him, like the Corinthians were, and he had to correct them on their their spiritual abuses. They were not a burden to him like the Galatians were, and he had to correct them on allowing legalism and Judaism to infiltrate the church. He loved them. He enjoyed them. They brought him tremendous pleasure. And he writes this letter to them from prison. He might have been in a prison in Rome. He might have been in a prison in Ephesus. We're not entirely sure. But he writes a letter. Now, I can remember bad memories of English in school. I didn't like English, never liked English. And in English language, I can't remember what stage of the educational journey this was at. It was in the last millennium. But in English language, we we learned about two different types of letter. And I never still to this day can figure out the difference between them. One of them you put the address on the left-hand side, and one of them you put the address on the right-hand side. One of them was yours sincerely, and one of them was yours faithfully, and I couldn't get my head around which one you used when. In the ancient world, there was a guy called Demetrius who wrote a book about letters, and he described not two different types of letters, but 21. 
Can you imagine being in his class in school? 21 different types of letter that you needed to understand if you were being taught by Demetrius. And Philippians takes two of those letters, two of those types of letter, and merges it together. And if you grasp this, again, you will appreciate and understand Philippians in a whole fresh way. The two types of letter that are involved here, and I know there's information coming at you thick and fast. It's more like a TED Talk than a sermon, but you can go back and listen to it again. The two types of letters that are merged together here in Philippians, the first one is called a letter of friendship. A letter of friendship. The church needs to get better at friendship. Well, there's too many of us who are just together on a project to start a program here, a project there, plant a work here, and it's all just project-based. Paul was into friendship. He was into family on mission together. And Paul writes this letter of friendship. Friendship in the ancient world was almost contractual. It wasn't just a couple of mates who supported the same football team, liked the same rock bands, and ate the same food. It was much more than that. You were expected to step up to the mark and look after your friend if your friend was in difficulty. I've experienced that. It's beautiful. Whenever friends immediately step up to the mark, make the phone calls and help you out, it's class. And in the ancient world, friendship was a binding thing. That's why the Jewish leaders said to Pontius Pilate, you are no friend of Caesar's if you don't crucify Jesus. It wasn't just you won't be invited round to Caesar's for a beer and a game of cards on a Friday night. It was a contractual agreement. And Pilate, you're not going to receive any benefits anymore from Caesar if you let this man go. Friendship was so much more than we think it is. We prize individualism. In Western culture, we celebrate people who are independent and strong and can look after themselves. That is unbiblical, profoundly unbiblical, because God's word is about a people, a family who carry his likeness and his presence and who show the world by their relationships with one another what God is like. And when we retreat into individualism and independence from the family of God, we are living in an unbiblical manner. So this is a letter of friendship. And over the the coming weeks, I'll show you how he uses uh, that letter writing style as he writes Philippians. And the second type of letter that he's using here is one called moral exhortation. That basically means how to live well. Encouragement given to live in a particular way. Now, this flies in the face of the ancient world. The friendship letter flies in the face of our world where we don't do friendship particularly well. But the moral exhortation letter, the letter encouraging you to live well, flies in the face of the ancient world where the God you worshipped did not have any influence on how you lived. You did whatever you wanted. You lived any way you wanted. You treated people like any way you wanted to treat them. You used them. You abused them. You cheated. And then now and again, you brought a sacrifice to whatever God you followed to try to keep him happy. Christianity comes on the scene and says, no, 
We are made in the image of God and how you live matters because you are reflecting the character of the God that you are made in the image of. God wants a people who show the world what he is like. And Paul writes this letter of moral exhortation to encourage the Philippians to live well and to show the world the character of God and the character of Christ by how they, relive, how they live and how they relate to one another. And frequently in this type of letter, you would use an example and you would say, live like this. Here's an example of how you should live. Paul does that sometimes where he uses the example of himself and profoundly in Philippians chapter two, you can check it out yourself later. He leads the example of Jesus or he leaves them with the example of Jesus in terms of how they should live and relate. A letter of moral exhortation. So let's finish by just lifting a couple of things from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And there only are a few minutes left. I'm bound by time, so i got to stop soon. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. First three words, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. I never really realized this before, but so many of Paul's letters open up with Paul and. Not just Paul, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silas, Paul and Sosthenes. Paul is an and guy. He does not work in isolation. He does not put himself on a level above other people. He is working alongside others. Here's this friendship. Here's this partnership that we're going to read about in Philippians, the partnership in the gospel. Paul was an and person. In fact, all of Paul's wonderful theology that we have, we only have it because he had relationships. We only have it because he wrote letters to people. Otherwise, we would not know what Paul believed and we would not know what he taught. We have his theology through his letters, through his relationships with others. Friendship, and I'm going to mention it again and again, needs to rise higher in our thinking. It is vital. Christian friendship and being together for the gospel is so, so important. Paul and Timothy. And he presents himself in this letter to the people that he loves, not as an apostle. He doesn't put himself on a level that is different from their level. He says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. We're just the same as you guys. We're not different. We're not special. We're not high and mighty. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. And he refers to them as saints. Again, modern culture has, has taken that word and wrecked it. I am a saint. And so are you if you follow Jesus. Not because of how you live, but because of Jesus. Because you are part of the holy people of God, you are a saint. No church needs to confer that on you. Nobody needs to give you that title. Every single follower of Jesus is a saint, part of the holy people of God. It's Old Testament language from Exodus 19. And Paul emphatically writes the letter to everybody. He says it's to all the saints. 
It's not just the leadership team, all of them. Because we will see there's a wee bit of dissension going on in chapter 4. There's a wee bit of squabbling. It's not quite disunity, but it's not just the way things should be. And Paul writes this letter to all of them. You're all getting this together because you are all together as friends, as partners in the gospel. And look at how he greets them in verse 2. And with this I finish. Grace and peace to you. And where's that coming from? It's coming from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I tell you this, grace and peace does not just float down on the breeze and land in somebody's life. Grace and peace has got to be carried. Grace in Greek is charis, and, and the, the, the Jewish concept of peace is that beautiful Hebrew word shalom. But they don't just fall on people. They have to be brought. They have to be carried. Paul brought grace and peace to Lydia at the river. He brought grace and peace to that slave girl, that demon-possessed girl in Philippi who ran after him shouting out. He brought grace and peace to the jailer who was about to commit suicide and end his life. Paul carried grace and peace. Do I carry grace and peace? Rick Watts says, commenting on this passage, he says, if my life doesn't bring grace and peace to you, then I don't know Jesus. Hmm. Do I bring grace and peace? Am I a person who goes into a meeting, a gathering, a group, and brings grace and peace? Or do I bring division and hostility? If I follow Jesus and I know Jesus, then I will bring grace and I will bring peace. Whether that's the kids in school, whether it's the family at home, whether it's to the church, whether it's to just someone that I'm doing a business transaction with, do I bring grace and peace? Because if I follow Jesus, then I'm a carrier of those things. And people in the world outside the church are not going to receive grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if we don't carry it to them. We must bring it. And there are plenty of days in my life where I don't maybe do that well in grace and peace, but the Holy Spirit's working on me. The Holy Spirit's working on me. What are you, what's the trail? What's the wake that we leave behind us as we move through life? Is it a, a trail of destruction, broken relationships, hostility, division, fights, disagreements? Or is it, is it a trail of grace and peace? If we follow Jesus, that is what we will bring. That was a blast of an introduction to Philippians. Go back, listen again slowly. We're going to cover verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1 next Sunday morning. You should read over it a few times. Think about it yourself. I might even fire out some questions to provoke some thought. And we will journey through this together as friends in the gospel, as a family on mission, partners in Jesus Christ. One of the words that we're going to see next week is that word koinonia in Greek, that word about friendship and partnership in the gospel. Beautiful word. Bless you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to see some of you very shortly on Zoom. You've got about five or ten minutes to get out of your jammies and put on something more appropriate. Um, Let me just pray before I shut this thing down. Father, fill us with grace and peace.
You are the one who gives it. We are the ones who carry it. Lord, would you fill us with that? Would you set new levels and standards and goals in our lives about friendship and about moral exhortation, about living well in a way that reflects you? And Lord, will you cause us to be excited about this journey we're going on together as a church? Will you teach us, Holy Spirit, and will you fill us afresh in Jesus' name? Amen. Bless you all. See you on Zoom. Bye. Next time. <clears throat>